0: 1 Kings chapter 20. All right. Last week, in verse nine, we finished verse nine. But verse nine and verse ten together. So, for the sake of, let's begin reading in verse nine, chapter 20, verse nine. We there. Just a reminder. Let's silence our—I call this a noise-making device. Dropped it in the bathtub this morning when I was trying to show Becky that it was snowing west of Waco. <laughs> she panicked more than I did. <laughs> but it—I rescued. It's still a noise-making device. All right. Looking now at verse nine. Wherefore. He said unto the messengers of Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that thou didst for me, excuse me, didst send servant at the first, I, but this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent unto him and said, The gods do so unto me and more also. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. Okay, well if you don't the context from last week, then it might be a little difficult to grasp where we are. Already King Ahab to send his wives, his children, his gold, his silver to him. And then Ben Hadad apparently grew impatient and said, You know what? On second thought, I'll just come get all of them myself. And Ahab was willing to concede all of those members of his family and his riches, but he panicked when Ben Hadad said, I'll be right there to get them. And that's where we pick up there in verse 9 Ahab drew the line. And when we left off last week, we had just witnessed Ahab, the king of Israel. Don't let that slip. The king of Israel, yet an unbeliever and a coward, reveal his values to us, to a threatening Gentile ruler, Ben-Hadad of Syria. Ahab was willing to send his wives, children, gold and silver, yet he did not want Ben-Hadad to come to Samaria and take them. He drew the line, and I suggested to you last week, that that Ahab, Ben-Hadad would come and never leave. He'd show up to the door. He'd be that uninvited guest who never goes home. Let's look at verse 10 and see why... Why might Ahab not want Ben-Hadad to come? Do we have a hot pulpit mic also? If we can, we're having a lot of skipping out on the the headset. Thank you, brother. I want you to look at the end of verse 10, because I believe this may be the key to understanding why Ahab did not want Ben-Hadad to come to Samaria the last few words, all the people that follow me. Ben-Hadad said, in fact, he staked his life on this, that if I come to Samaria, the people who follow me are going to be many. And that was the trigger for Ahab. I believe the Bible is somewhat clear about that. Ben-Hadad might come and be more suave. Perhaps he would be charismatic, appealing to the people. After all, he was a mighty general, a mighty king, and he might lure away Ahab's followers. And what would that make Ahab? Irrelevant and powerless. And of all the things Ahab didn't want to be, it was irrelevant and powerless. If Ben-Hadad took Ahab's silver and gold, oh, he could just get some more of it. If Ben-Hadad took away Ahab's wives, he could just marry others. And children, he could just make more of them. Now that's a sick train of thought, isn't it? But it appears to be how Ben-Hadad valued his family. But to take away all of Ahab's followers... All the people who told him, King, you're the bomb. You're wonderful. To take all of those people away would be irreversible. If he lost all of his followers and all of his followers lived in the land of Israel, particularly in Samaria, the city, then how could he have more followers? He'd have to go somewhere else. And I think that's why Ahab did not want Ben-Hadad to come to Samaria. Now let's learn something from this besides the historical fact that we read in the Bible. A Christian should not be concerned about whether anyone follows him. To be followed and liked on social media today is what drives people to post endless photographs videos and blogs of themselves and about themselves. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just taught in the synagogue, and his disciples were present as well. He taught them that he was the bread of life, and whoever ate of his flesh and drank of his blood would dwell in him and be dwelt in by him. Now, he wasn't telling them to literally eat his flesh and drink his literal blood. Otherwise, once that was all drunk up and eaten, nobody else could be saved, could they? No, it referred to those words of life, the gospel. And by those words, they believed that they would live forever. They believed on that message and would live forever. Now, listen to the verses that follow that scene in John chapter 6. I'm just going to read verses 66 and 67. Jesus had just put this out there. You eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. In other words, you believe on these words from the Father, and you're going to have eternal life. And it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Now Jesus didn't change his philosophy. He didn't change his religion. He didn't try to save his reputation. The passage tells us in another place that Jesus knew who would believe on him and who would not believe on him. What he didn't try to do is get more likes. He didn't try to get more people following him by doing what they want. Now let me tell you, I love it when somebody posts scripture or posts a Bible truth on their Facebook page. And then I see other like-minded believers say amen. That's good stuff. I agree with that. Those are wonderful things. But do you know all of those likes and follows aren't supposed to be for that person. They're supposed to be for the Lord. And so if I post John 316 on a Facebook page and 48 people like it and and so forth, then it's not me that they're liking. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. And that's who they're following and liking if you want to look at it that way. But Jesus didn't try to get more likes and followers by doing what was popular. Why, he could have said, oh, no, what I just said offended some of these disciples who've walked away. Hey, hey, guys, come here, come here, come here. Let's work this out. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. He didn't do that, did he? In fact, he said, I came not to bring peace but to bring a sword. To set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother. He came and brought that word. When he told his disciples, follow me, he meant follow me as I am, not as you want me to be. The Jesus people have created in their minds today and for years is a Jesus of their own making. From the long hair to the using him. Whenever they're being judged for their sin to say, well, well, Jesus would just love everybody. Jesus would do this. They don't know what Jesus would do because they really don't know their Bibles. If they knew their Bibles, they would say, Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, said the life I'm living is full of sin. And without him as my Savior, I have no chance to be saved. So they've made a Jesus of their own making. But Jesus has never changed. Ahab, on the other hand, was quite concerned about Ben-Hadad. Very likely because of this reason. He wanted followers. Ahab had many who liked him and followed him. And you know, Ben-Hadad didn't say, I'm going to come to Samaria and teach those Israelites about the Lord. No, in fact... Ben-Hadad said he would stake his life on the certainty that the number of Samarians who would follow him would be more than the dust of Samaria. Now let's look at verse 11. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, that's tell Ben-Hadad, Look what he says. Let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that putteth it off. His harness. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible, that is probably in italics. What that means, as you may well know, is that the, the Hebrew word for that was not in the original text. So it was added to give us an idea. The translators added that to give us an idea of what it means to to gird in this context. The word girdeth, as you see it here, it says, let not him that girdeth on his harness. Girdeth means to put on a restraint like a belt. Now, today, what does my belt do for me? It does me a great favor. It keeps my pants from going somewhere besides where they need to be. It restrains them from falling to the ground. And in ben Haydad's case, or in the case of any soldier, there is also a restraint that they put on. It would be a belt that holds a sword or maybe some um, other implement of war. Here's an example. I have a duty belt. As a law enforcement officer, I have a duty belt. It has on it handcuffs an expandable baton, a taser, a handgun, a radio, a tourniquet, and a small flashlight. I really need about a 46-inch waist to carry all that. And every year that I've been in law enforcement, one more thing has been added to my belt. Some of it I have to just leave in the car because I don't have enough belt on which to wear it. But that is my professional equivalent of a harness, if you're trying to understand what a harness might be. And I leave all of those pieces of equipment on my duty belt. So when I put it on in the morning, that's an outward sign that I'm about to go to work. I don't just walk around the house with my duty belt on and my pajamas. Not like that. Not anymore. When I was a rookie, I may have. And when I take that duty belt, that harness off, that's an outward sign that I have safely arrived at home from a successful day at work. Now, it would be silly of me to get up at 4.45 a.m., and that's when I get up on all of my work days. Not as early as Brother Doug, but I'm, I'm up pretty early. It would be silly of me to get up at 4.45 a.m., gird myself with my duty belt, my harness, and then tell my wife, well, thank God for another safe tour of duty when I haven't even gone to work yet. This is what Ahab is saying Ben-Hadad shouldn't do. Tell him he shouldn't put his duty belt on and brag as though he has finished the war and taken his duty belt off. It's really a wise saying, isn't it? Reread the verse here. And he answered and said, Tell him, let not him that girdeth on his harness boast himself as he that put it off. In other words, in the same manner as one who has taken his harness off. For such a foolish person as Ahab... There is a wise saying. It's almost as though in this case, Ahab agreed with the scriptural truth that's given to us in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 1. Which you may know, it says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Now isn't that something? Ahab had access to the Proverbs written by King Solomon. Solomon came before him. He had access to the wisdom in those Proverbs. But had he lived by that wisdom, he wouldn't have been in this situation in the first place, would he? And let me tell you, as we study the Proverbs, and I'm so glad uh, Brother Fulton is taking that on, there was a time when I was thinking about teaching through the Proverbs when I was done, and I'm glad he beat me to it. That's wonderful. I'd rather hear him teach than hear me teach. Anyway, it's, it's a lot easier to not teach myself, but to be taught by another. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. That's the same wisdom contained in what Ahab said to tell Ben-Hadad. And as some unbelievers do, Ahab used the wisdom of the scripture to further his own aims, to save his own hide. You know, people do this today. A little child says something funny, or maybe he says the quiet part out loud, and we all go, oh no, that's true, but I wish he wouldn't have said that. And those adults might say, out of the mouths of babes, and then they just stop right there. And what they're saying is, you never know what a child's going to say. You never know what's going to come out of their mouth. And that's not at all the context of that saying, because that's just part of a saying. It's part of a scriptural truth. In fact, I'll read you a couple of scriptures. One is Psalm chapter 8 and verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. That thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. So it doesn't have anything to do with a child saying something surprising or something witty. It's directed toward what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 8 verse 2. And then also in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16, Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16, and the blind and lame came to him, that's to Jesus, in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? The word for children in that scripture in Matthew can either mean a child or a servant. Were the children of Israel all seven years old? No, they weren't. They range from adults down to little kids. And so this saying, this scripture, Jesus gives us the context to understand it, doesn't have anything to do at all with children saying something witty uh, in our presence. So watch out for how the world uses, or you might even say misuses, the words of the Lord. So what was Ahab telling Ben-Hadad? I've got it reduced to the East Texas translation. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. That's right. I hope that's not all you'll remember today, but if that's it, then okay. That's still a good good saying, good bit of wisdom. Look in verse 12. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking, He and the kings in the pavilions that he said unto his servants, Set yourselves in array. And they set themselves in array against the city. Looking at the word drinking, the translation of it, it suggests that Ben-Hadad was drinking an intoxicant. The Hebrew word is translated for the very first time as the word drank when it was used in Genesis chapter 9 pertaining to Noah and it said and he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered within his tent and that's when two of his sons covered him up and one was cursed because he saw his father's nakedness so in our text Ben-Hadad was getting drunk at which time he made a bad decision to set his army in array or in formation against Samaria. And that is the reason for Proverbs chapter 31 verse 4. Ben-Hadad was a king. So listen to Proverbs 31 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel... It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Do you see why? The first thing a person loses when he or she drinks alcohol is their judgment. And it doesn't take long. Their self-restraint goes out the window by the drink. And before you know it, the drinker's judgment is so bad that he believes he can drive a 3,000 pound motor vehicle at a high rate of speed in a 12 foot wide lane without endangering the public and now Ben-Hadad has decided that he and his Syrian army can take on and defeat the children of Israel in Samaria not forgetting that this is a nation God gave to his chosen people. How dare a Gentile king do that? But he's drunk. And he made that bad decision. Doesn't matter how bad the king was in Israel. To ben haddad he had no right to touch the apple of God's eye. But he would try to do it anyway. Verse 13. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. It says a prophet doesn't give the name. And we do well to remember that it doesn't matter who this prophet was. If some say, well, I think it was probably Elijah. Well, I think it was Elisha. Well, I think it was Obadiah. It doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know exactly who it was, he would have said so. His name is not important just like my name is not important. You know, we all like to hear our names, don't we? When somebody says our name, we do. It's a, it's a natural thing. Uh, one of the things that we learn in negotiating with people who are Trying to harm themselves. We run across that a lot in my business. Is to learn their name as soon as we can. And start speaking to them as a person. Instead of, hey, how about John? My name's Andy. Starting with that personal relationship. Because people like to hear their name. But this prophet was just a vessel. Who carried the water of life. That is the word of God to Ahab. The prophet didn't say, let me tell you what. He said, thus saith the Lord. That's all he was there for. He wasn't there to make a name for himself. He wasn't there to tell what his opinion about the matter was. He was there to say, thus saith the Lord. And that's what my job is up here is to say, thus saith the Lord. And the prophet said, if you're looking back in your text, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? The great multitude of the Syrians would seem impossible to defeat. Just like the great giant of Gath named Goliath in David's day. He seemed an insurmountable foe. Even in the eyes of the warrior King Saul, who the Bible says stood head and shoulder above every other man. Saul was afraid of Goliath. Or for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle to enter the kingdom of heaven. That seemed to be impossible to the disciples. But in every such case as these... God taught them and he taught us the truth declared by Jesus in Matthew 19:26 Matthew 19:26 His disciples had asked him who then can be saved after they heard that about it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God Here's Jesus answer But Jesus beheld them and said unto them with men this is impossible But with God, all things are possible. So this great multitude of Syrians and their leader, Ben-Hadad, would have been an insurmountable foe, especially considering how many Israelites are actually going to go out to war, as we'll look at in just a few moments. But with God, all things are possible. The prophet said today. Not after you recruit more soldiers, not after you guys get in the weight room and start working on chunking your spears and fighting with swords. No, today, God's going to deliver them into your hand. Is God good or what? To a wicked king, Ahab, more wicked than all of those before him. To a coward, to one who's willing to give away his wife, children, and riches. God sent a prophet with good news. And that was the good news of deliverance from their enemy, the Syrian army. Have you thought about what a wretched sinner you were when God brought you the good news of salvation? How can anyone look at this and tell me God is not merciful? Whether it be this passage or when God came To you with the gospel truth. He said in Romans chapter 5, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, like Ahab, Christ died for us. Satan holds up our sins as if on a giant billboard and says, hast thou seen all this great multitude of sins? You're condemned. That's his message to us. But Jesus holds up that completed transaction. No, he has that billboard with all of our sins on it. And it's covered in blood. It's covered in his blood. That those sins would not be held against us anymore for those who receive that message. Jesus said, hast thou seen all this multitude of sins? Behold, I've delivered you from it by my death and burial And resurrection. The multitude of the Syrians represented our multitude of sins. A great multitude against which we had no hope, no counterattack, but Jesus did. And it was his sacrificial death that gave us the deliverance from that multitude, just as God would bring deliverance To Samaria from the Syrian multitude he brought deliverance to us from the multitude of our sins and not only was God merciful to Ahab but there was a second just as compelling reason for God to bring deliverance to Samaria remember what God told Elijah when Elijah said I'm escaped and they seek my life, and all these others have been killed. In other words, he was saying, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left out here to serve you, and they're trying to kill me. What was God's answer? We've got 7,000 in reserve who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> there are plenty more just like you, Elijah. And God had 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal and who lived there in Israel, whether in exactly in Samaria or not. I'm not sure. But by protecting Samaria, he would be protecting them. By delivering the enemy into the hands of the Samarians, God would be protecting those who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So that's another reason, besides the fact that he is merciful, is that he was protecting those 7,000. But regardless of the reason or reasons for God's grace and mercy, Ahab is going to be without excuse if he should once again do despite to the spirit of grace that was brought to him by the words of that prophet, that nameless prophet. Verse 14. And Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus saith the Lord. Even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, who shall order the battle? And he answered, thou. So God's going to deliver through these young men of the princes of the provinces. And Ahab's going to order the battle. Pretty simple, isn't it? This conversation between the prophet and King Ahab. But look at Ahab's question. When the prophet said, "The Lord is going to deliver the enemy," Ahab said, "By whom? Who's going to use?" As if God needs help. And that re- reveals to us Ahab's lack of faith in God's omnipotence. That means all his all-powerful attribute, omnipotence. Omni is the prefix for all, and Potent has to do with power, so omnipotence. God needed nobody to create the heavens and the earth, nor to create man and all of the living creatures. Why then would God need a by whom to bring victory to Ahab's army? Sometimes God uses man to do great things. He used this prophet to deliver the word of God to the king. Other times, God gathers man or gathers men together and allows us to watch him do great things. Although Moses was the human leader of the children of Israel when they were delivered from Egypt, there were several obstacles along the way. During their journey. Just like there are ours. And just as the. Obstacle of the mighty. Egyptian army. Was not one the Israelites. Could overcome on their own. Neither could they cross. The Red Sea. On their own. Nor defeat hunger. Thirst. And a slew of enemies. On their own. God never needed a. By whom to do his mighty works. But he sometimes used man to accomplish it. Look at verse 15, or look at the, uh, the numbers of the people. We're still in verse 14. Even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. That was the answer for the by whom. This time I'm going to use somebody, I'm going to use these men, God says. In the Bible, we see that there were 232. If you turn back a few verses, you'll see there were 232 of the young men of the princes of the provinces. And then there were the 7,000 there that we'll see down in verse 15. So let's go ahead and look at verse 15. Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them, he numbered all the people even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. So there were 232 young men, and then there were 7,000. Now, if you just look at this text without looking further into it, you'll think there were only 7,000 Israelites in all the land, and that's not at all what's being said here. The 7,000 were not all the people of Israel, but rather those who would go to war. And it seems fitting, although it doesn't specifically say here, but it seems fitting that the number 7,000 represents the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Because God said he had reserved them. He had them in reserve. When you have something or someone in reserve, what does that mean? They're subject to be called to duty, aren't they? That's what our military reservists do. They they work secular jobs and go to their... Uh, they go to their, what would you call I guess it's drill every so often, and it may be in the summer. And then they go home, but they're subject to being called to duty. And that's what these 7,000 who had not reserved, who had not bowed the knee to bail, were doing. Brother Doug, would you go see if Elizabeth needs some help back there with the person who came in? Oh, good. Okay. Oh, that was Tammy. I think Elizabeth can handle her on her own. You may stay seated. <laughs> That's what happens when you have one bionic eye and one bad one. You see things. Alright. But I believe the distinction here between the 232 princes and the 7,000 men is just that. There were some princes, there are young men of the princes, and then there were 7,000, and these were the ones who are going to go to war. Now, the question Ahab asked at the end of verse 14 was, Who shall order the battle? And he answered, Thou. And then in, there in verse 15, he numbered them. So look at, let's look at this word order. Who shall order the battle? That word order is literally translated as bind, even in prison. The sense of the word here is that an order must be given... That binds the army to the mission of fighting the enemy. Without that order, the war is unauthorized. It's terrorism. With that order, the war is mandatory. So it's a binding statement. And the king of Israel would give that order. Now verse 15, where it says, He numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and he gives their number, and numbered all the people, the 7,000 who would go. In military or in law enforcement, this action by Ahab would be called a muster. A muster. Before we conduct a search warrant, we muster up and we have a pre-operation briefing for safety. And by doing so, we see if everyone assigned to the operation is physically present. And if they're not, they don't get to participate in the raid. Too many things can go wrong. Now, a larger numbering of people, for example, if the United States military branches were to be mustered before they go to war or to uh, take some sort of action, they probably wouldn't be mustered in one place. There would be several locations where they were mustered, whether it be bases or, uh, or some other location. So that's what this numbering is. The word numbered is also translated as the word visit, as God visited Sarah, or as the word overseer, as Joseph was made overseer over the Potiphar's house. So Ahab is responsible for overseeing, for giving the order to this army because when he asked that prophet, by whom? He said, thou. This this is on you. You're going to... Muster these people up, and you're going to give the order to send them off to war. Verse 16. And they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the thirty and two kings that helped him. Do you get that? By noon, Ben-Hadad was already drunk. I once read a saying about alcoholics and their work, and it went something like this. When drinking interferes with a man's job, he has a drinking problem. When work interferes with a man's drinking, he's an alcoholic. And I think the point of that saying was to demonstrate the complete dominion alcohol can have over a person's life. Ben-Hadad was a king, but in name only. I guess you could say he was a kino, a king in name only, right? We have rhinos. Republicans in name only, they make me sicker than the Democrats. Excuse me, I'll go right on now. If I I know who my opposition is, I'm okay. But if my opposition is disguised as a friend and they're behind me, I'm in trouble. All right. It says he was drinking in the pavilions. There in the middle of verse 16. Drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, and that's a plural word, isn't it? He was bar hopping. Can a person, much less a ruler of a nation, get any work done bar hopping? That's how silly that is. Does it make his nation, his workplace, his family, or even himself stronger when he bar hops, when he pavilion hops? I know we're talking about a drunk Syrian king right now, but let me say this. You all know this pastor and I have always been against drinking alcohol and I've had people Christians or there are people also who said they were Christians. I don't know which it was, but people in churches that I've been to ask me, well, now what if, what about this? And, and what if that, and, and does that, is that really, they spend more time straining at a gnat over whether they can take a drink than they do anything else. And the Bible has much to say about it, but there are some who are going to drink it no matter what we say, no matter what we preach, no matter what God's word says, and they'll probably continue to do so having justified it in their minds. And I can't help them. And rather than standing up here and telling you more, why you shouldn't drink, let me just read some scripture to you here in just a moment. My question to people is, why do you not rather than why you shouldn't? Why do you, is it to relax? Have you tried prayer? Is it to change the way you feel? Have you tried prayer? Is it to have fun? Have you been around us very long? This is about the most fun group of people. And and I'm not being sarcastic. We really are. We have a good time. You hear how often Brother Fulton and I cut up with each other and we with y'all and we have a good time. And there is not one drop of alcohol or illegal drug or prescription drug, for that matter, that's involved in the good time. So I'll leave the subject by giving you something to consider from the Bible. Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Sorry, that's one of the verses y'all are reading today, girls, but we'll just have it read again to us, won't we? But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. This is John the Baptist. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Now listen to this. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And then Ephesians 5, 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Take those two verses and put them together. Do you want to be great in the sight of God? And do you want to be filled with the Spirit of God? That means controlled by the Spirit of God. Then stay away from alcoholic beverages. It doesn't mean you're not saved if you drink one. Not drinking won't get you to heaven. Drinking won't send you to hell. Unbelief sends people to hell, and belief in the gospel is what saves people. But how many Christians have stunted their spiritual growth by getting involved in that? Let's go on to verse 17 now. Now see what we just did? We took a topic as it came up in the scriptures. That's how we do it here. We don't have this list of topics. We're going to, we're going to do some sin killing preaching. We're going to preach on drinking and smoking and cussing and all that. We just do it when it comes up in the Bible. And let me tell you, it comes up a lot, doesn't it? That's the way we want to do it in context with the Word of God. So you can see it in operation. You can see what a fool Ben Hadad is going to make of himself. Verse 17, you know what? We're out of time. We're going to have to stop right there. Because I want these kids to be able to practice before uh, before we start, and so let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the people who are hungry to hear it, and we ask, Lord, that you teach us by your spirit the truths that you would have us to glean from these passages, and as we go away from here, we'll have more of the armor of God that we may.